Hey tennis fans and welcome to another edition of Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada and we're also members of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Ben Lewis. Joined alongside Mike McIntyre and our guest this week, Mike, a true legend of the game of one of the greatest doubles players of all time, one of the greatest Canadian tennis players of all time. He had 91 career titles, including a gold medal back at the 2000 Sydney Olympics. Mike, you had the opportunity to speak with Daniel Nestor. Yeah, it was great to talk to Daniel for the first time on the podcast. Uh, talked to him several times over the course of his lengthy career. And um, my goodness, has he achieved just so much in the sport. I mean, I had to leave things out in my introduction because it would have just gone on too long. It would have just sounded like this big, long, rambling introduction. And even still, I was gassed by the end of it and basically out <laughs> of breath with, with all that he did accomplish during his career And uh, I mean, it's pretty rare in any sport that you're going to have someone who's gone on for 24, 25, you know, plus years, 30 years, I think, basically, from start to finish, which is just maddening when you think about um, the longevity, uh, avoiding injuries, and and not to mention also the desire to keep playing and keep competing. And, And as Daniel mentioned, as I spoke to him, I think the thing he missed the most was just the camaraderie, the fun and the shenanigans in the locker room. And to be still doing that in his early to mid 40s must have been, you know, obviously pretty special for him. Yeah, yeah, certainly extraordinary. And uh, we'll, we'll get into his personality a little bit after this interview. But uh, without further ado, here's Mike's interview with Canadian former tennis player Daniel Nestor. Today on Matchpoint Canada, we're thrilled to welcome a former world number one in doubles who's got 91 men's doubles titles, eight grand slams in men's doubles, four more grand slams in mixed doubles four world tour final championships. And of course, how can we forget his Olympic gold medal from the Sydney games? Very excited to welcome Daniel Nestor to Matchpoint Canada. Thanks for taking some time for us Thank today. Thank you. Good to be here. That was a mouthful of an introduction. I've got to say most of our guests don't have quite the resume that you do. Well, 30 years on tour, so. <laughs> That'll do it. Hopefully accumulate something. Well, I want to start, of course, with the Olympic Games, because uh, when the tennis event began last weekend, my mind immediately went back to your big run in Sydney back in 2000. Uh, hard to believe for me, at least that was over 20 years ago. I- I'm guessing this time of, of uh, the year when the Olympics are on must be pretty nostalgic for you to think back of, of what that achievement means. Yeah, for sure. Uh, it definitely brings back some memories. A little bit of heartache. Uh, the last Olympics in Rio, we, we, we were fourth place, so that's uh, not a position you want to end up in. We had two chances for a medal and lost both those matches, but uh, definitely some good memories. Even Rio was a lot of fun, and uh, you know it's uh, under different circumstances now, but uh, it's, it's always uh, special as an athlete, for sure. You've won it all in your career, as I just mentioned, uh, pretty much. Uh, how does the Olympic success fit in when you, I don't mean compare it necessarily, but when you sort of, you know, put it together with all the other achievements you had during your career? Well, for me, it was, it was quite important because uh, I felt as though I wasn't playing my best in the biggest matches, perhaps until that point, Uh, had some tough losses in in Grand Slam finals. And, uh, and then I thought I played really well that event, singles and doubles. And, and just, just the way I handled myself in, in the gold medal match was uh, important. I was working with a sports psychologist, so that kind of really kickstarted my uh, career in doubles. I was, it was around that time where I was uh, making the transition to just playing doubles. So if you look at my career, most of my uh, best results came after that. And, uh, and so it was, it was important. And just from a, 
you know, ex excitement perspective, uh, the Olympics is, is like nothing else we experience, uh, um, on tour. I mean, it's, it's a team atmosphere and, and it's just like that university life that, that most of us didn't have, uh, as tennis players going pro early. And, uh, so it's, it's really fun meeting the other athletes, watching them compete and, and being part of that team and, uh, and, you know, kind of staying in dorms and being in the cafeteria and, and getting to see all them in action. So it's, uh, it's special. And, uh, so for me, it was, it was an unbelievable, unbelievable, uh, memory and, uh, something that I'll always cherish for sure. When I spoke to Vashik recently, I asked him a little Daniel Nestor trivia question, which was how many Olympic games you participated in. And his guess was five. So he was close. Cause I believe your yeah. total was six. Um, how did you get to, how much did you get to soak in the, you know, atmosphere? Obviously it's a little different this year with all the pandemic precautions in place, but how much did you get to soak it in and, you know, catch any of the other sports while you're at any of those Olympic games? I mean, I've, I've seen a few events, uh, the, one Olympics, uh, I was on my way to watching the hundred meter final and, and being the careless person that I am, I lost my ticket on the way to the stadium. I was in like a cold sweat of like disbelief. Like, I just cannot believe what, which has happened. And I thought, uh, <laughs> I'm going to miss this, but, uh, somehow I, uh, I talked my way in, I guess, uh, having accreditation helps and I watched it, but, uh, it was, uh, it was fun to see that event. Uh, I think that's the most exciting event at the Olympics. And I, I, I've seen swimming, which was obviously amazing. To me, those two, those two uh, events stand out. Just, I mean, when you think of Olympics, you think, oh, the Summer Olympics, at least, track and field and, uh, and uh, swimming. And, and just the way they're, they, they go down, it's uh, the excitement of not being that long, but uh, being exciting, watching the race. And, and, uh, you know, I saw the U.S. men's basketball team play. I should say I saw Canada, Canada play two first. But, uh, you know, I remember Steve Nash playing, uh, representing Canada. They were playing really well at uh, the Sydney Olympics. So I've seen a few uh, really fun events and uh, met some really cool people. And uh, so it's, uh, it's really a lot of fun. Uh, your uh, retirement party a few years ago here in Toronto, your, your farewell roast, as it turned out to be, uh, it was cool because you had all your former trophies there for people to kind of take a glance at, not to mention all of your uh, former credentials as well, of which there were hundreds, literally. Um, but I'm wondering, I'm not going to ask where you fit all those trophies, but where does the Olympic medal uh, reside and, and how often do you take that out and have a look or show it off to your kids? It resides in a safety deposit box. Uh, one time I, my daughter brought it in show and share when she was in kindergarten. So that was exciting for some of the kids, but uh, not, I mean, I'm not looking at it too often. My trophies are, you know, scattered around the house. Most of them are in uh, boxes in the garage and a lot of pictures of my kids and my wife, uh, funny enough, but uh, not so much of uh, me or my trophies. So that's, the, that's it, long forgotten. You know, that's how it is. <laughs> that sounds incredibly... That sounds incredibly brave to let your daughter bring that in to show and tell. Did she have like armed bodyguards with her that day? Well, I, I was there with her, so uh, I made sure of that. But uh, <laughs> knowing the carelessness does run through genes and uh, possibly through uh, through them too. I had to be careful with that one, but uh, I feel safe that it's a safe, in a safety deposit box for sure. Right. Tough go for Team Canada in terms of tennis this year at the Olympics. Um, first of all, Dennis, Milos, and Bianca weren't uh, available to go. Vashik neither. And then early exits for Felix, Gabby, and Sharon. Do you see that as a missed opportunity for Canada, or do you have confidence that we're going to see that success in future Olympic Games? Well, both. I mean, uh, for sure, there, there's going to be you know so many chances with you know how good they are and how young they are, and uh, 
you know, hopefully Milos, uh, you know, he'll probably be his last chance at the next Olympics and Vasek, same thing, but, uh, you know, it's too bad. But one thing that uh, I wasn't really thinking about when, when all these players pulled out was the, you know, the conditions are tough there, you know, it's very hot and very humid and you, you hear the players complaining about it. I played in a, in Olympics like that. And I've always struggled in those conditions. I just, my body does not, uh, you know, just function the same as it does in, in more normal conditions or drier conditions. And, and, you know, I'm surprised that they're playing the matches during the day. You know, they could have easily played them at night, which they did at the Beijing games. Uh, so it's, uh, it's strange that, uh, you know, especially with this new rule of the, the clock there that, uh, you know, that's, that's winding down in between every point. I mean, they're, they're not making it easy on the players. So, you know, and from a tennis perspective, uh, you know, these guys are playing Davis Cups, they're playing, uh, um, you know, a full schedule, and it's not easy, and they have aches and pains, and and uh, so it's 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 not like all the other sports where, you know, not all the other sports, but most of the other sports where, you know, people are trying to peak for, for the Olympics, it's their pinnacle event uh, for tennis is obviously important, and, and for me, I mean, having a medal is, is amazing, but uh you know, everyone has different, uh, different goals and different mindsets. And, and, you know, so it's understandable that, uh, you know, the U S opens around the corner, national bank opens around the corner, summer season's long, it's hot, it's, it's strenuous. And, um, and it, it's, uh, you know, everyone's got nagging injuries. Milos that hasn't played in a few months. Vashik, uh, you know, he really struggles in the humidity and, and, uh, he, um, he's had, he's had shoulder problems for a little, a little while now. And, and same with Dennis and, so it's tough. Bianca, same, very similar to Milos. She's, she plays unbelievable for how little she plays. Uh, same with Milos, but uh, it's tough. She's, she's had a, you know, history of uh, battling different injuries. So it was, it was tough to see them not play because, you know, uh, they had, they had chances to all medal in, in all the events. I mean, I thought, uh, you know, singles, doubles, mixed doubles was, uh, was a great opportunity, but uh, unfortunately it didn't work out that way. But, uh, you know, there's, there's plenty of uh, hope for the future for sure. And I think uh, Paris, uh, hopefully we're going to be in a different uh, place with uh, what's going on in the world by then. And, uh, and so hopefully everyone's going to be ready and in uh, a good mindset. And yeah, it's unfortunate what happened uh, again, Sharon, I don't think was healthy, you know, uh, playing with Gabby and uh, Felix, you know, it was probably a disappointment for him considering how well he played at Wimbledon. And, um, but I thought there was a chance to mix, but again, it's, it's a crapshoot. I mean, those, those four mix that you win or anytime you win a mix, you know, you're not really preparing for mix ever. I mean, you're, you're playing singles or doubles, whatever it is that you do, you, you prepare with your partner and then it's kind of a last second thing always. So that's why when someone says I've won 12 grand slams, I don't really, <laughs> I don't really count four of those because, you know, anything can happen in mix. You know, just men and women playing together and, and, uh, and you're not really preparing for it. So it's, it's a little bit of a crap shoot and it's the same thing at the Olympics, which obviously at the same time can be an opportunity too. And uh, so I thought, uh, you know, they, they had a chance, but obviously they had a really tough uh, first round opponent and, and uh, yeah, it was too bad that uh, we didn't feel the team in doubles or, or more players in singles. On a positive note, at least the next summer games is only three years away instead of four. Yeah. Um, you, you mentioned the National Bank Open. Of course, that's coming up in just a few weeks. So another great chance for our Canadians to make some noise here and, uh, and, and gain some new fans on the sports circuit. Hopefully we have uh, as many as possible come out in Toronto and Montreal. What does it mean for you to see that tournament come back after missing its spot on the calendar last year? due to the pandemic and, and how important it is for the growth of the sport in, in our country? Well, it's huge. I mean, 
Um, it's great to have the event, obviously, from a financial standpoint, the Tennis Canada, it's, it's, in, it's very integral for, for their survival and well-being. I mean, it's, it's great that uh, I think they're, they're happy that they're ha able to host fans, even, even, even though it's a limited amount. So from that perspective, it's going to be, from a fan standpoint, it's not going to be great. But uh, from you know TV standpoint, it, it's still an option. Having an event is still great. And uh, so that, that's a bonus. Um, but I, I mean, I don't think it's really impacted that much. Uh, I mean, Tennis in Canada has already been booming. I think it's it's almost sad to say that uh, it's not, I don't want to use the wrong words, but it's sad that, you know, COVID has made it even more popular because, you know, people aren't able to play, you know, other sports uh, during that time. Uh, so tennis, fortunately for the sport, has, has been able to continue for the most part. And uh, so a lot of people are drawn into the sport, which is great for the sport, but but maybe not great for other sports. And uh, so I think just, just from that perspective, we have so much participation at all levels and, and we're going to have, uh, you know, I just, we're going to, it's just, uh, you know, compounding upon itself, uh, you know, the, the talent that we have and, and the excitement that we have and, and the youngsters that, that want to continue this and, and just even at all levels, I think it's just amazing how many people are playing tennis. And, and uh, so it's just great to, to be part of it. One of my favorite uh, National Bank Open, well, then obviously it was the Rogers Cup memories, was, uh, it's kind of a funny one, but it was you in practice and you were one-on-one -on -one with someone, I forget who it was at the time, and you said, okay, last point, championship point at Wimbledon, this is for the whole thing, and you served it out, you won the point, threw the racket in the air, big celebration, I got this great picture, you'd think you just won a Grand Slam if you looked at the picture. Y your sense of humor was notorious amongst uh, players in the, in the locker room, and I'm just wondering... Do you miss that aspect of being a pro and, and who's the target of your quick wit these days? Well, it doesn't take much to, for me to, to, you know, fool around or, you know, I, that, that's probably what kept me on tour for, for 30 years. Uh, just, you know, being lighthearted and, and enjoying myself probably annoyed a lot of people. I got a lot of stories of uh, annoying people too, but uh, you know, I, I enjoyed practice and, you know, I would always say last point until I won that point, and then it was then it was officially last point. So <laughs> those kind of things were, were going on. Uh, you know, I, I love to have a good time in practice and, and fool around, and uh, you know, but obviously be serious at the same time because obviously <laughs> you're not going to stay at the highest levels if you're fooling around too much. But uh, I, you know, I like to to joke around, keep it lighthearted, and uh, make it competitive, and and uh, you know, obviously depend on who I'm practicing with too if they're. Uh, you know, more easygoing, then I'd, I'd engage a little bit more. If they're not, then I, you know, I kind of feel it out early in the practice. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I definitely miss that part of it. Uh, I hit a lot with, with my kids now. And obviously, you can't really, I, I'm, I'm too strict. So it's, it's hard for me to get in that mentality with them. So every now and again, when I hit with other people, I, I try to relive those moments. But uh, I keep in touch with you guys. I still play some fantasy sports. So uh, from, those, those are usually uh, comprised of uh, ATP players. So keep in touch there, but uh, you know, not so much with them. A lot with the Canadians, but not so much with uh, some of the, the more international guys. Gotcha. I, uh, I've never been to a roast before where the person who was supposed to be roasted flips the script and turns it back on, on one of his friends on stage like you did with Milos a few years ago. I thought that was very well done how you deflected that. Uh, is there anyone amongst the Canadian group that you still, uh, you know, send a few texts to just to keep them on their toes these days? Well, I'm probably closest with Vashek. Uh, you know, we, we keep in touch and, uh, and are, are pretty like-minded. And uh, so, you know, 
probably mo mostly with him, but, uh, you know, if, if someone's doing well, I try and reach out to them and, and, you know, congratulate them, which is a lot these days. There's always something, uh, something going on, but, uh, yeah, I mean, they're all good guys and, you know, I definitely miss, uh, the, the thing I miss the most is probably the locker room at Davis cup and getting ready for, for, uh, you know, the weekend matches and, and, and more about the week in preparation and the fun we'd have, we play some soccer on the court and, uh, you know, we would get competitive and, there'd be a lot of uh, joking around trash talking and just, you know, we keep, keep the ball up in the locker room too. We just try and keep it in the air as long as we can. It ended up with a lot of uh, items falling off shelves and, you know, things getting broken and all that. But uh, while it was going on, it was fun. Someone would always get mad because something they had there usually in the staff would, uh, would have to come fix something. But uh, so there was always that aspect of things that, uh, that we enjoyed doing. And uh, so that part of it for sure I missed. One more question before I let you go, and that's uh, what's your, your current uh, sort of status involvement with tennis, with the sport? What's keeping you busy these days? And, and do you see a, a long-term association with tennis for you even into your retirement years? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I, as I said, I play quite a bit with my kids. Uh, I've done some stuff at different clubs over the last couple of years uh, when things were open, do some stuff with Tennis Canada at times. So I, for sure, that's, uh, that's what I love to do is uh, – and that's what I'm good at. I mean, I, I know the game well and, and uh, I enjoy being on the court. I enjoy helping people with their game. And, uh, you know, obviously don't want to do it for 10 hours a day, but, uh, you know, a few hours a day is always fun. And, uh, you know, that's, that's been my life. So that's what I know well. And that's what I'll continue to stay focused on. Right on. Well, uh, Daniel, thanks so much for taking time with us today. I, I think that was your first time with us on Matchpoint Canada. So I hope you do come back at some point and, and do this again, because uh, you got lots of fans out there and, especially this time of, uh, you know, the sporting season with the Olympics. Couldn't think of anyone better to have on than you. Okay, thanks a lot. There you have it, Mike's interview with Daniel Nestor. And one thing that I really took out of this conversation, actually, was he kind of viewed that 2000 Sydney Olympics, that gold medal with Sebastian Leroux, as a bit of a turning point in his career. And um, you, you look at the results, actually, after post that gold medal, it was a major turning point for him in terms of grand slams. He hadn't won a grand slam prior to that moment. Um, so in terms of importance for what it kind of carved out for him afterwards was, was really enormous. And, and it was quite surprising at the time. I mean, if memory serves correctly, right, we're going back over 20 years, but uh, did not have him on the short list, uh, him and Sebastian Leroux of contenders at those Olympic games from, from my memory of it anyways. Uh, and I just remember being so not only surprised, pleasantly surprised, but just, you know, again, that those, those passionate feelings. And for us here in, in Canada, you know, I tweeted out yesterday, like my favorite Olympic memory or the one that stands out to me was when Donovan Bailey won the hundred meters back in 1996. And, you know, one of the secondary memories that certainly stands out was Nestor and Leroux having their moment. Um, and, and for Canadian tennis at the time, I hate to say it, I don't want to sound too critical, but there wasn't a whole lot going on back then. Um, so that was just such a huge step forward, it felt like, for our country. And then for Nestor to, to leapfrog from that, to have so much success at the Grand Slam level and establish himself as one of the, if not the greatest male doubles players of, of all time. Um, pretty cool that he even admitted it, it got sparked from that Olympic gold medal. 
Yeah, and actually, you look at that same season. Uh, looking back, it was interesting that he also won in Canada that year too, and and then just a major breakthrough, as you say, afterwards. Two thousand two was an enormous year. Won the Australian Open, titles at Indian Wells, Miami, and Madrid as well. And uh, such such a long illustrious career. And I like how humble he is because he's sort of just joking. You're you're talking about winning over ninety titles and these World Tour Tour finals and all these Grand Slams. And he's like, well, you know, this is what happens when you play for thirty years, but uh, you have to be a great player for those 30 years to do uh, to accomplish what he managed to do. Yeah, he was almost kind of taking away from his accomplishments when he talked about his mixed double slam, saying, well, you right. know, you're basically catching lightning in a bottle and who's to say what's going to happen. Um, to me, one of the more incredible um, you know, aspects of his career was the fact that for 24 years uh, straight, he finished in the top 100 in doubles from April 1994 to April 2018, which wow. is pretty crazy when you think about that. And and Nestor made the wise move to switch from singles to doubles. And he was an accomplished, not top 20 singles player, but he was an accomplished singles player, a, a bona fide singles player, but made the choice to prolong his career and to maximize um, success, longevity, um, I mean, profit as well. I would imagine he made way more, I'm sure. And, and I'm sure there's not that many players that can say that, but he made more money too playing doubles than singles because he realized that was his niche and that's where he was going to uh, be able to have that level of success. So I think that's a good sort of role model for a lot of players who maybe are struggling in singles, having a tough time, you know, becoming mainstays in the top 100. Why not look at what you can do in a doubles career? And, and on the female side, we've seen um, as well, Gabby Dabrowski do that quite successfully and Sharon Fishman as well, since she's come out of her first retirement and have so much success in doubles too. So sometimes it's uh, good to look yourself in the mirror and, and give yourself a good hard look and realize, Hey, where are my best talents and, and where can I maximize what I bring to the table in terms of uh, being a professional athlete? Yeah, certainly uh, maximizing your strength. And s some of his singles results actually caught me by surprise when I'd taken a look too. that he made the round of 16 at Wimbledon in 1999. So you have to be a great player to, to be getting into the final 16 at Wimbledon. So as you said, it, it's not like he was a slouch on the singles court. You know, he was capable in that field, uh, but just an exceptional prolific doubles player recognizing that. And uh, as those early 2000s went on, just uh, amassing exceptional wins. And also one hell of a funny guy. I mean, I never, <laughs> yeah. I never would have guessed it. I don't know how many <laughs> listeners feel the same way. Like I just never would have guessed that Daniel Nestor was a comedian, you know, aside mm -hmm. like outside of his on-court persona where he was generally pretty focused and pretty quiet and reserved. Um, one of the funniest guys you'll ever meet. And to me, it really came out at that roast uh, that I believe you and I both went to that. I think we sat together. I, I actually missed the roast, but uh, you oh, were there. Okay. Well, I sat yep. next to someone who reminds me of you, I guess. But, okay. um, <laughs> but at that roast, which was at, uh, I want to say, not Massey Hall, Roy Thompson Hall, downtown okay. Toronto. And I thought, oh, man, like, what is this going to be like? Is this going to be funny? Is this going to be really lame? But it was hilarious. And uh, Milos was there. Vashik was there. Fashik was hilarious as well. He's got a good sense of humor too. Probably mm. picked it up from Nestor in some ways, being his sort of protege, little brother on tour there for a while. But it was like, you know, doubled over, hunched over, laughing so hard. Uh, and Nestor, as I mentioned, when I spoke to him, he just 
deflected everything from him and sort of shot it back at the people that were trying to roast him, like <laughs> Milos, who uh, he really caught Milos off guard, I feel like. So it was a lot of fun um, and, a, and a nice way to sort of send him off into retirement. But um, yeah, sense of humor uh, on full display. And, and, and before I chatted with him, before I started hitting record anyways, we had a few laughs. I, I, you know, for those who are listening, you can't tell, but I've got an old Slazenger racket that's behind me when I do my interviews from the seventies. And so he commented on that and I said, yeah, I don't believe that was around when you started your career, but maybe. And uh, so, you know, he had a good laugh being a good sport and, you know, just kind of set the tone. So hopefully that came across in our chat. I had a good time talking to him for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, very much enjoyed listening to it. Yeah. I, I've heard in the past other ATP players being asked like who chats the most in the locker room, who won't shut up. And, and during his career, the name Daniel Nestor would often uh, come up. So very funny to hear him acknowledge at the end of the interview that he was always bugging and annoying people, uh, which was, which was great. But uh, I, I think he has a general terrific rapport with people and thrilled to have him on our match point Canada podcast. You are listening to match point Canada, the official, podcast of tennis canada we're on twitter at matchpoint can you can follow us on instagram matchpoint canada as well um we should discuss what canada did or or rather didn't do at the tokyo olympics and um you know it's hard to find a silver lining because it was a disappointment uh on the tennis side of course we didn't have bianca andrescu there milos brownich i'm happy to report he's playing tennis again he's at the atlanta open right now but he didn't make it to Tokyo. Vashik Pospisil, he called the decision to pull out, I think, one of the toughest of his career. Denis Shapovalov, he's still young. There will be other opportunities. But uh, Felix Ojealiasim, Leila Fernandez in singles, uh, Gabby Dorowski, Sharon Fishman um, playing doubles. And um, we just had early losses kind of across the board. And I'll, I'll start with Felix Ojealiasim because... We were prepared for what would have been, I think, a very compelling first round match against Andy Murray, uh, an amazing Olympics player who's won two golds, of course, battled so many physical issues. And one popped up right before they were about to play. He had a quad strain. So suddenly Felix is facing uh, Max Purcell of Australia, who's just barely inside the top 200. You think, okay, well, Felix is going to have a comfortable start to this event and uh you know that that was simply not the case at all and and it's tough to wrap your head around Felix who just made quarterfinals in Wimbledon losing first round to Max Purcell it was an absolute shocker like an absolute I was stunned absolutely stunned when I woke up and saw this I mean I didn't I'm gonna say I didn't stay up and watch that one because I figured it was gonna be a a routine straight set dismantling not to mention, you know, the Australian found out what at the very last minute he was coming into the draw. Yep. Oh, by the way, you're playing one of the brightest young talents on the HP tour, a guy who's what inside the top 20 um, for him, you know, got to give credit to, to the Australian, to his opponent to perform like that and to beat a player of, of Felix's uh, talent level. But yeah, what a missed opportunity. What an unexplainable, I, I can't explain, you know, what it was. Was it nerves? Um, you know, was it the the last minute change of opponent? Although you right. have to think, well, hey, I was going to go up against the two-time defending gold medalist, Andy Murray, uh, a legend of the sport, albeit one who physically is, is not at his, you know, best right now, admittedly. But still, it just is very perplexing. And uh, while I've tried to maintain a, you know, very positive attitude with our young Canadian players as they come through and, and have sometimes these blips, these, these unexplained, uh, you know, losses early in their careers. This one was a real tough one to sort of wrap my head around. And I think it was for many of us. Yeah. Um, 
the good news for Felix is he's going to have hopefully several more Olympic games to learn from this experience um, and, and come back stronger, but uh, still a real lost opportunity, especially in a draw that doesn't have Nadal, doesn't have Federer, doesn't have a lot of, you know, guys that uh, for one reason or the other didn't head over there. So Mm -hmm. um, yeah, a real missed chance for Felix in this one. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And it's funny that you, you call it unexplainable because that was almost the vibe I got from Felix reading his post-match press about sort of what went wrong. And it's almost like he was having difficulty explaining why I can play so well at Wimbledon and be dictating and be in control and then have a match like this where there were all these lapses and uh, you play consecutive bad points at the worst times and serve poorly in the worst moments. Um, And uh, yeah, it just felt like everything that could have gone wrong did go wrong against a a surprise, like a totally unexpected opponent that he wouldn't have prepared for. Max Purcell goes out with nothing to lose. He serves well, and and suddenly you're behind the eight ball. You lose the first set. You're in a second set tie break. Anything can happen. A couple loose points, and and you're going home. And uh, that's kind of what happened and materialized here. And, and just like you said, everything that could go wrong did go wrong. That's not just in this match, but for Canada, it's sort of like a microcosm of what happened, unfortunately, for Canada yeah. at these Olympics. There was so much, I had so much hope, and I'm going to say it, expectation. Now we're in this stage where there's expectation mm-hmm. for how our Canadians are going to perform. And, and that's, you know, credit to them and how well they've played the last few years. But even missing Bianca, Milos, Vashik, and, and Chapo. I still thought we had a great chance to medal between Felix, Gabby and Sharon in doubles, maybe a mixed doubles partnership that, that could have, you know, yielded uh, better results as well. And so um, I, I think it's fair to say this was a very disappointing result for Canada. And I'm usually like a raw, raw, you know, red and white kind of guy. And I look yeah. at the glass half full, but in this case, I'm going to say, no, you know what? It, it didn't go down as, as planned. Uh, it didn't go down well at all. And, um, and and certainly a missed opportunity for the, the few entrants that we did have. Uh, and if we want to look at Gabby Dabrowski and Sharon Fishman, who were the seventh seeds, went out in straight sets in round one, um, you know, what do we attribute that to? Could it be that Sharon's, you know, shoulder that uh, forced her to withdraw from Wimbledon had still not properly healed? Right. Could it be a lack of chemistry between them as the two hadn't played really any events in I can't remember how long? Um, I mean, they had success back in the day, uh, going back to like 2013 at the Rogers Cup, when they knocked off the world number ones from Italy en route to the semifinals, but haven't played a lot over the years together whatsoever, and certainly not this year or last year to the, the best of my knowledge. Uh, but I had them pegged as, as definitely a potential um, medal uh, winning team, given they're both both of their strengths in the doubles world. Yeah, yeah, that was surprising. Then I would have had a little more faith if, you know, we were talking about Gabby Dabrowski and Vashik Pospisil as a mixed doubles tandem. And well, it was interesting to listen to Nestor kind of call it a crapshoot. And, and that was probably what kind of transpired with Gabby and Felix really not knowing each other's games at all. And then you're Never facing played together before, right? Right. And then you're yeah. facing, well, Zachary and Tsitsipas are two fabulous singles players. Uh, it's easy to think they could transfer that to good doubles play. So uh, the Greek Greek players knocked them off in the first round. And I, I guess my lone shout out will go to Leila Fernandez because she is the one player who won a match. And you think about the fact she's still 18 years old. Uh, interesting her opponent, Diana Yastremska, who's been 
out of tennis for a while. I think she was battling and, and fighting a drug suspension, actually trying to get reinstated in the sport and finally did get back. Um, and Layla won a tough three setter against Yastremska, who I, I should point out is a very dangerous opponent, like big ground strokes from the baseline, mentally probably not always in a great place. And then Layla is facing French Open champion Barbara Krajcikova, who um, played a great match and won 6-2, So uh, for Layla, I think this was a, a decent result. I, I pretty much probably, as I looked at the draw, was thinking she has a good winnable first match and is going to be in tough in that second round. And, and that's kind of what happened. Yeah, I put it at 50-50 in my mind heading into the um, the first round against Yastremska, who was on the cusp of making the top 20 before her um, yes. her, her suspension. And so, I mean, I guess on the positive side, someone who's coming back doesn't have a lot of match play under their belt. So that, I thought, fared well for, for Layla Annie heading in. Um, but, but good for her to get that win and to close it out in the third set the way that she did as well. Um, you know, good for her confidence. And then, as you mentioned, Krajcikova, I mean, you're going up against a top player. So, and that seems to have been, unfortunately, the downfall of Layla Annie in recent events, big events anyways, is she goes up, <clears throat> pardon me, she goes up against a really top-level player, a Madison Keys, a Krejcikova, um, you know, someone of that sort of uh, substance where, yeah. yeah, I don't think she's quite ready to be beating those players. And that's not a knock against her. Um, it's funny. Every time she plays, I get a message from Jimmy Connor's son, Brett, oh, yeah. uh, because he's, he's really high on Layla Annie and what she brings to the game. And, uh, and he wouldn't mind me saying this. He, he does like to put money down on tennis matches and, and he's always looking to put down on the Canadians and sort of like sess me out ahead of time for how I feel about these matchups. Nice. And I try my best to kind of, you know, keep my comments guarded. Cause I'm like, <laughs> damn, I don't know how much this guy's putting down on this match. I don't want to yeah. give him the thumbs up. Um, and in that one, I would have said, yeah, maybe, you know, hold back on the cry cheek of a match. Cause you know, in all fairness to Layla Annie, she's just not at that level yet, but all of these losses, all of these experiences are things that uh, she's learning from. And I hope she wasn't too hard on herself. After we spoke to her in press at Wimbledon, you could tell she used the word embarrassed about her yeah. her, her performance. And my God, you just wanted to reach out and give her a virtual hug because it's like, no, no, you've got nothing to be embarrassed about. Mm -hmm. What you've done over the past two years has been nothing but progressing slowly and steadily. And, um, you know, good times are, are ahead for you if you keep working this way for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I'd, I'd almost forgotten that she's still 18 just because of such a, a rapid progression in the rankings a year and a half when I had brought her back up in her stats. I, I think I had 19 in my head and I was like, oh my gosh, she's still only 18 years old. It wasn't that long ago that she was a junior champion at the French Open and her progression, her ascent since then has just been uh, remarkable and incredible. So um, she should hold her head uh, nice and high, I think, leaving Tokyo. She did well. Uh, tough loss to Krajcikova, as we said. Um, we'll, we'll do a full Olympic wrap-up next week, but uh, I, I do want to update things on the National Bank Open side because we did get the federal approval that we, know, that we knew was coming for Toronto and Montreal. So it is all systems go for both tournaments, which is fantastic news. I know you and I both can't wait to uh, see some matches live again. Feels like it's been uh, ages. Um, but, uh, yeah, we're ready to go August 7th. We'll start with the qualifying for that weekend. And then we have our, our full draws in place for both Toronto and Montreal. And for you and I, it will be again, a very busy week. Yeah, we've got a lot of plan. We're going to be doing daily podcasts as we did two years ago for those who tuned into us back then and, and remember. So from the Monday through to final Sundays, every morning we'll be dropping a, a new podcast talking about, you know, what we've seen at the tournament 
uh, hopefully having some great one-on-one interviews with some of the top stars in the game and uh, basically relaying any insider information that we can with you. It's our home tournament. So um, we got to be, if we're going to be insiders anywhere, it's uh, it's here in Toronto. And uh, I'm just so happy for so many different stakeholders uh, that this tournament is a go first and foremost for the fans, for tennis fans, young and old, who are going to get to uh, descend on the Aviva center or in Montreal at, at Jerry park there uh, to, to catch some live tennis even in smaller numbers, you know, yeah. still hopefully everyone's going to get a chance to at least check out one session. Uh, it's great for the players to be playing in front of crowds again. It's fantastic for our Canadian players to have this opportunity as it's the, you know, these are the only two big tournaments in Canada over the course of a regular scheduled year. Um, not to mention how great it is for Tennis Canada and the fact that, you know, all the money, 90% of their funding throughout the year to pump back into the program comes from the National Bank Open and, and Banque Nationale in Montreal. So it's just a win, win, win all around. And I'm getting stoked. It's uh, this is my favorite tournament every year. And uh, it's been two years since we've been there. So we're hoping to bring you some great coverage throughout the event. Yeah, yeah, I'm so thrilled for it. And I should just reflect on the fact that when we were probably talking about National Bank Open, um, you know, three, four months ago, you're going back to March and April, you and I, I, I think, really did not believe it was going to take place. And when we had our discussions and I was saying, okay, you know what, this, this tournament can happen. They're going to make it happen. We really thought then it was going to be broadcast only. So for us to be at a stage here where fans, you know, thousands of fans can see live tennis, I understand it will just be the center courts, but I I think that's uh, such a testament to how far we've come uh, in in Canada for fighting this virus through the past few months that uh, we should embrace it. Um, no negativity. This is a wonderful thing. I- I'm sure everything will be open for, for next year in terms of the, the fan experience, but uh, to-, to have live tennis back uh, with our two biggest tournaments of the year in Canada is, is just terrific news. Yeah. I know we were putting on a brave face. I feel like every time we talked about the prospects of the tournament, <laughs> yeah. but inside I was thinking it's just not looking good, you know? Yeah. And, and fortunately, uh, you know, I, I, I think with, every, you know, a lot of people getting double vaccinated and whatnot that, you know, curbing the spread, and, and feeling comfortable to get back out in, in public again and, you know, still wearing a mask when you need to and, and washing your hands and, and keeping distance and whatnot. But I feel comfortable going. And um, I, I don't know if I could have said that even a month ago. So, mm-hmm. you know, credit to, uh, hey, the people of Ontario for what we've been doing over the last little while and, uh, and looking forward to being there, looking forward to talking about it. And uh, yeah, all systems are a go. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, We can't wait for that one. You've been listening to Matchpoint Canada. Guys, we will talk to you next time. 